0: When was the last time your response to the Lord wasn't because of what he had done, wasn't because of what he had given you, what you were looking forward to him doing, or how he has blessed someone else? When was the last time that as you looked into scripture and you saw who Jesus is, that it prompted worship in your heart? And you thanked him for that. See, it is easy to thank someone for what they've done for you. We do it all the time. Someone holds a door, you are thankful. Someone gives you some money, you are a little bit more thankful. Someone gives you a lot, you're really thankful. Someone does something that you desperately needed, you are really grateful. But when you are thankful for who someone is, You've stepped into another area. I would encourage us today. Yeah, we can thank God for a whole lot of things of what He is doing. And, and I, I am grateful for the salvation that He's given because it enables me to see Him for who He is and how Scripture has revealed Him. But when I begin to just glory in the fact and thank God for the fact that who He is, will determine everything about even what happens with me. And as I rest in the fact of who Jesus is, man, it changes everything for us. Amen? Amen. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And stand with me as we read together. You have verses 1 through 7 in there. We're going to read that. We're actually going to spend time verses 1 through 6 this morning. I believe what we have in here is the English standard. I'm going to read it from the bulletin bulletin, just in case it is. Let's read together, starting at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want us to look at, for the time we have remaining, this notion of living out, living out our position in Christ. Or we could say that we are growing in practicing our position practicing our position. All of us today that are working in some capacity or even as a student that are studying in some capacity, you have a position. Regardless of what that position is, you have a position. That position can be maybe a particular worker in a particular field. You may be a teacher or an instructor, you may lead people in certain endeavors. You may be in the medical field, the legal, and, and, and you, but, but, you, but you have a position. If you're in school, you have a position, too. It's called student. Sometimes you may not want that, but you have a position. If you are in sports, you have a position, that of an athlete. And so we all, in some way or in one way or another, have a position, but it's interesting we don't stop there. If all we did was have a position, it would be pretty sad. For someone to say, I have the position of nurse, yet you did nothing, it would be interesting. Person that has, I I have the position of teacher, but you don't teach, that's pretty interesting. You got people labeling themselves ballers and can't ball. (laughs) Yeah, see, we laughed at that one because we know people that will Claim the position, but there's no practice. And Ephesians does that for us. Ephesians, Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians establishing our position in Christ, where we were, who God is, and because of who God is, what he did through Christ, and where we now are as followers of Christ. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians works out and tells us about and establishes your position in Christ as a follower of Christ. And in that, he tells just some really great things about how God won, and and we get some of these great things about what God is doing in us. You get Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 which we know real well, which it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of work, so that no one would boast. And then verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we get these great quotes and these great truths and these great assertions, about who we are because of what God has done. And so we get the privilege given by God through Christ as believers. But just like with any privilege given, that privilege is not given alone. When you and I received the privilege to drive legally in whatever state your license is, you were excited but you understood that that privilege came with something else. And I know all of you who drive know what that is. Along with the privilege came responsibility. And so now Paul in chapter 4 starts off for the believer, for the Christian, for the Christ follower. He says, I've spent all this time talking about your position in Christ and what it took to get you there. He says, now I'm going to tell you in light of your position, what your responsibility is as a believer. And so he starts off with verse 1 I mean, in chapter 4, and he says, therefore, and we know, we've said it before, where you see it, therefore, what do you do? You find out what is therefore. Come on. And the issue was he is now wrapping up all of what he had discussed in those prior chapters and establishing our position, and he's saying, now, in light of the fact of here's the position you have, here's what is expected of you in this position. And so he now says, therefore, and he tells them, number one, it is an urgent command. This is almost in crisis mode. The way this is written in its original language, Paul is coming to them with not, it's kind of important that you know. He is sharing it with such an urgency, it is near crisis. It's like someone telling you, here's what you have to do. Here's what you need to know right now, and you need to respond. See, when someone comes to you with an urgency and says, "Quick! This is this is what you need to know. This is what you need to do." And if someone comes with that level of urgency, you you respond with it. And Paul is doing that here. So he comes with an urgent respond, uh, uh, an urgent command that he wants a response from. But here's what he does. He tells them, "I'm going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you the intensity of the command because of the cost that it." has taken for me to give it. So he tells you, I, therefore I, Paul, he says, a prisoner of the Lord. Understand he says that. He is saying not just a prisoner, not just one who is bound to what the Lord is doing. He's saying as one who has suffered because of what the Lord wants him to do. See, understand when it was written and where, and Paul was very familiar with literal prison. And so he reminds him, he says, look, as someone who has sacrificed greatly, but as someone who is committed intensely to the Lord to the point that he's willing to be a prisoner, so now he's sharing the intensity and the urgency of it. He says, look, I've decided to be a prisoner for this message. I've committed myself to where it's caused me great restriction, where it caused me great pain. He's not complaining. This is not a complaint. Paul is saying, listen, what I'm about to tell you comes at great cost. And so for you and I, let me ask you, is the message that you're sharing with people about who Jesus is, what cost has it brought to you to share this message. If it's no cost, I want to ask, is there any commitment? See, when you share the gospel with someone, when you share the good news of the Lord with someone, when you share what Christ has done for you, at what cost are you sharing that? Or is it just a walk in the park? It's just easy. And I would say if it's easy, I want to come back and ask you, what's your level of commitment to this? Because at some point, if it hasn't yet, it's going to cost you something. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord because of what I've committed myself to. And so he says, I urge you. He says, therefore, prisoner of the Lord. He says, I urge you. It's almost, it is a pleading, it is a begging. And then we have one of our two main points for this morning. He says... He is urging them to live a life worthy or to live a worthy life of the calling. Now, remember, he spent the first three chapters establishing that calling. And it's, the, it's, that, it's that calling, God both calling you out, and it is also a calling as in he is commanding you to something. So it's, it's him going, hey, come out. But it's not just saying come out. He's saying, when you come out, I'm calling you to a body of something that I want you to commit yourself to. The last few weeks, we learned about God seeking true worshipers. And then we talked about, I, must incre- I mean, He must increase and I must decrease. And now God is saying, I wanted us to take here. Okay, as we get into this new year, God is saying, there is a calling. There's a calling out to those that don't know Christ. He's saying, you can come out of your sin. You can come out of your hopelessness. You can come out of this crazy world. To me, even though you're still in it, you're out of it. But then he calls you to something. And so he says, I urge you, therefore, in light of all that I just shared and established and all that God has done to get you to stand before him, And the critical nature of the finished work of Jesus Christ and all that it took Christ to win your salvation. And for those who take your salvation rather flippantly, or is not a big deal, you just need to go back over the first three chapters of Ephesians and see what God had to do to get it there. And then he says that I urge you to walk worthy. I urge you to walk worthy. I think I shared this example before. One of my favorite movies I like, military movies, is Saving Saving Private Ryan. One of the ones I like. It was hard to stomach that first scene when I first saw it. But it's at the end of it that I like. And when Tom Hanks' character, who is the commander of the unit that was sent to find Private Ryan, and based on a true story because all of his other brothers had been killed in war, and the US military said, we can't leave this woman, this mom, with no sons. Because I think three of them had already been killed. And so they go on to search for Private Ryan to save him so that this family has at least one son left. And so they find him, and at the end, it is that it is that scene where they are in hand-to-hand combat. And, and, and that there are soldiers dying left and right, some of the main characters in the movie. And there, Tom Hanks' character lies mortally wounded. He is going to die. And that scene hits me because it reminds me of this. Private Ryan walks up to them, and he sees that he's hit, and he's dying. And Tom Hanks' character says to him, all he could say is, earn this. That's what he says. He says, earn this. All these people have died saving you. And he tells them, earn this. Now, we know we can't earn this. There isn't anything you can do to earn the salvation that God has won for you. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 established that. But what the character was saying, he says, live a life worthy of the sacrifice that has been made that you stand here today. And so now when we see Paul starts off and says, live, and he says, walk. And that walk means to live. That's what you do daily. You walk. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so he tells us to walk worthy. But then he explains what he means by walking worthy. And it's interesting in Ephesians what he uses to explain it. Now, when he is talking to you, it's a southern you. You know what I'm talking about, right? Y'all. It's a plural you. When he is talking to you, it is a y'all you. And so what he, in essence, for us, he was saying, look, y'all, here's how I need y'all to walk. So he's talking to the collective, to the church that is at Ephesus, and he is telling them, as God is telling us in the room to walk worthy, and then he says, here's how you do it. And he gives us four descriptors, really three, and one explains one of them. So four, when he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, he goes, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then he tells us, a command for the motivation for how we need to do it. So, so let's start off. So he tells us to live a life worthy of the calling. As I said earlier, it was a calling. First of all, it is a calling not to do something. If you notice here, it is a calling to be something. And this calling first is a calling to salvation, and it's one to holiness. And we know that. If you read the chapters there, you would see it. it's a call to salvation, and it's a call to holy living, clean living. My brother read the scripture there that he says this is pure religion. And I like how he says how you treat widows and orphans, I mean, orphans. And then at the end he says, and to keep yourself unspotted from the world or to keep yourself pure. He said, that's true religion. And so he says here, listen, this calling is one to salvation, which you come, and now it's to holy living continually. But then he says, here's how you live it. And I love what he does that word worthy, fitting or becoming, fitting or becoming. So live fitting or becoming of a person that's been delivered as described in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And so I would tell you to let's go back over those first three chapters and see what is fitting as a result of what God did in those first three chapters. But he says, with humility, and here it is, it is lowliness. You know, in, 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 in Greek culture, that word was not used um, as a virtue, as something that you look forward to. That whole, that whole humility, lowliness of thought and of position was actually looked down upon in Greek culture. They didn't see that as a virtue. But God used it because really what it spoke of was knowing your place. Now, usually when we hear that, when someone says, know your place, it's not shared in a good light. Someone walks up you say, yo, man, know your place. You go, thank you. No, you don't. <laughs> someone tells you to know your place, they're usually telling you you're out of place and for you to get in place. But here, in reference to God, it's a great thing because humility is when you see who God is, it now causes you to respond because you understand who you are. Or let me put it this way. When you see God's place, you immediately know your place. No one has to tell you. See, the arrogant person is out of place. The prideful person is out of place. Why? Because they have put themselves in a place where they should not be. And so when you and I are arrogant and prideful and, of ourself, God says, this boy done forgot who he is. She done forgot her place. And sometimes God will have to remind us of where we are and who we are. And he allows things to happen that we know our place, not to thumb us down, but he knows our best success is in knowing and understanding his position and ours. That is the whole point. To Job, 38 to 42. Remember when God told Job after Job called God out, because he did, and he was suffering, God understood it, but he called God out. And in essence, as you read the book of Job, Job was saying to God, I've lived righteously. How do you let me suffer like this? How dare you, God? I've done all you said, and then you allow this to happen. And his friends, who weren't friends at all, We're no help. None. Zero. As a matter of fact, God made them come back and ask for forgiveness from him. And then God told him, when your friends come to you to repent, then I'll forgive them. How's that for setting the record straight? When God says, I'll forgive you when you go back to him and ask him for forgiveness. And so Job's still upset. God says, I need to help him out. Now, you may think that when God tells Job to, you know, gird himself up like a man, I will will speak and you will answer, that he was, thumbing. No, God was giving Job a dose of good perspective that I think many of us lose when we deal with God sometimes. Job needed to see the greatness of God because he had lost his perspective. He thought he could call God out. And God says, "Okay, hold on a second, the reason you're doing this is because you you've, you don't understand who I am and you don't understand who you are and so God starts off and says to job and you know it, where were you when? And he begins to start from the dawn of creation on down and he begins to talk about hanging the stars and 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 and, and job is probably standing there with his mouth hung open like I didn't I done done messed it up, boy. I done stepped in it. Man. And God goes on. God doesn't stop. He goes on and on and on. And you can think, Job said, I got it already. No, you don't. Listen. And he keeps going on. Why is he doing that? Because what God is trying to help him to understand is, I can handle all of life. And he says, because of my place and my position, who I am. And the reason I want you to trust me is because of who I am. And he sets him up and he says, now, here's who you are. And Job says, I spoke of things too great for me. Yes, you did. And we do the same. Just, you know what? Let's not throw Job under the bus and think we're on that bus. We speak things that are too great for us, too. We come to God and question him, not asking for information, See, and you know the difference between Mary and Zechariah when they asked the question. Mary asked, how can this be when the angel came to him? And, and the angel explained. Zechariah asked, how is this going to happen? And God said, I need to shut you up. What's the difference? One was asking for information because I don't understand it. The other one was saying, how on earth can this happen? What? See, for you and I, sometimes when we come up against God, God says, I need to let you see who I am. And when you do, you'll change some of your thought. That's what happened with Job. And so when he says here to walk worthy in humility, he says that we know his place and then our place. But then the next thing he says with gentleness, and this is power under reserve. This is power that is reserved, meaning held back. A great example of this is is my brother, my brother Ray, has been an electrician for years. Now he's been about 33 years, been an electrician in New York. He's worked in all kinds of situations with electricity, and he's been with the union, and he's been a part of building buildings and skyscrapers and, and, and wiring. And remember one time he talked about the time when he was most afraid. He walked into a generator room of this big office skyscraper in New York, and he said... You could feel the electricity when you walked in. Now, you have to understand my brother's about six, almost six, three, a six, two, six, three, over 300 pound guy. And he says, I respect it greatly. He said, I touched something the wrong time and got thrown off of a ladder. But he said, I walked into this room and my hair stood up because the air was so charged. But he says, but that power was under control in them generators that were turning in that room. And when I think of gentleness, our first example is God. Power under control. Can you imagine if the Lord unleashed on you and I? And that time when we have our fists up and we are mad at God, if God unleashed. But he doesn't many times because it is... Power under control. And so he says to us, here's how you live out your calling or you live worthy. Number one, you know his place and thus you know yours. And so I don't look at you cross-eyed because I'm not comparing myself to you. I don't feel good on your behalf or or, or by your sacrifice. Hey, I'm not like him, God. Mm-mm. God says, I look at you and I realize my place. And thus, I will end up when the scripture says that I will put the needs of others before my own. Why? Because I realize God has my needs in mind and he's taking care. of Why? Because I know his place. But then he says how we deal with one another. Gentleness. We can destroy, but we don't. We can wreak havoc, but we don't. We can handle roughly, but we don't. Someone gave me an excellent Excellent description of gentleness from the Scriptures. I remember, um, in high school, we had foundry shop. And I know some of you guys don't. Everything is computer-driven today. But when I was in high school, they had foundry shop. We would, we would make our wood molds first. And I, I, the object we made, I don't know what use it was. It was just something nice that we made. But we would make our wood molds. And then we would take them to the foundry. My school had a foundry. We had to put on all the masks. And we would melt the metal and would pour the mold. And it would turn into whatever the object was. And so the whole, the whole, the whole thought was, he said, is that 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 vice grip, that that thing that you turn that'll hold your object, he said, imagine putting an egg in a vice grip. Putting an egg in a vice. Now, you know how gentle an egg is. He said, you would have to take that vice and and just ever so gently, you can do it, but it would have to hold it ever so gently, because at any moment, it can crush it. God says, that's gentleness. So when we deal with one another, God says, here's how you live worthy, knowing your place because you know his, but number two, knowing the strength and power that you can unleash in any particular area, but you don't. You are reserved. You are under control. And then he says, with patience. So it's humility, gentleness, and patience, that patience is long-suffering, or you deal long with people. Some of us can't deal five seconds with people. We see someone coming. I'm tired of this dude. I'm I'm, I'm tired of him. I, I don't want him around. I don't want her anywhere near me. Okay, I'm crossing the street. I'm not dealing with her. And the deal was as believers. He's talking about one to Remember, he's talking to the Ephesians, y'all. He says, y'all, work, you know, live worthy, humility, gentleness, and, and dealing long with one another. Don't be so quick to jump ship with your brother and sister. We're not talking about condoning sin. We're not talking about that. He's talking about as you journey with people, journey with them. Journey with them. Don't quit and get off the trail quick. I don't want anything to do with them. I'm done. has done this twice. And again, I'm not talking about enabling bad behavior either. Journeying with people sometimes means calling them out. But you're not calling them out to embarrass. You're not calling them out to throw them under the bus. You're not calling them out to make yourself look good nor feel good. You're calling them out to correct in love, And so he says, with humility, gentleness, and patience. And then he explains the patience. He says, bearing with one another. That is standing under the load of dealing with the person that you're currently dealing with. Standing under the load. Because, you know, sometimes dealing with some of y'all, it's a load. I know y'all know that. Dealing with one another, sometimes it's a load. It's a burden. And God says, bear it. Y'all want to throw it. God, I'm I'm ready to throw her. God says, bear it. Why? As a believer, he says, because here's what you're doing. That's called living worthy. Worthy of what? Worthy of the fact that God took all this, three chapters worth, to get you to where you are in Christ. And you don't want to do anything now that you're in Christ. And he goes, bearing with one another. But hear how he says it in love, and we know that love is the benevolent. It is the benevolent concern for the well-being of another. It's not this, this, this. The, I mean, it can bring feelings, but the love God is talking about is not this. I don't feel mushy for her. God says, I don't want you to. I want you to be concerned with her well-being, and that's going to cost you something. It cost Paul his. It cost Paul his freedom. He said, I'm a prisoner. And so now he's in love. And so he says, in love, bearing with one another. And then he gives an imperative that is to support all of this, which is interesting that this is his description of living worthy. The description is, he says, eager to keep the unity of the Spirit. Eager. Let's read it. He says here in verse... In verse uh, Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me just spend just a little bit of time with this before we move on in. And so he says, first of all, our calling is to be expressed in community. Did you notice that? Everything that he's dealing there? You don't need patience when, well, you need some patience with yourself, but you don't need a whole lot of patience when you're dealing with yourself. He's not talking about you just living by yourself. You don't need a lot of humility when you're living with just yourself. You don't need a whole lot of long-suffering and gentleness when you're dealing with yourself. Sometimes you, do, but you don't need a whole lot. Where do you need it most is when you're living with other people. And in this particular case, other believers. And he is saying that these are the things that will demonstrate that you are living worthy. And so he comes and he says, with all that eager, and that eager mean quick, you are you ever had someone that's eager to do something? You want to tell them, yo, 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 slow down, slow down, because they're so eager. Sometimes we call people eager beavers. Yo, man, slow down. They're eager to get it done. Why? Because that's the word used here. It is, uh, you, you are quick to respond. And so he says, eager to keep or to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is interesting. Living worthy. People that live worthy are quick to keep peace between other believers. Now, I'm going to show later, he is not talking about peace at the expense of biblical truth. He's not talking about that because he gives us these seven assertions that kind of grounds that unity and that peace. But he says, you and I, if we are living worthy lives in Jesus Christ, worthy of our calling, he says, you are quick to maintain what the spirit has started. Listen to what it says. It didn't say that they are quick to 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 build or to make the peace, because we can't. Peace is made by God. Now, remember, he says that Jew and Gentile were brought together in those first three chapters, that he he tore down the dividing wall, that there's no more this, you're Jewish and I'm Greek. Well, today we say, there's no more that you're black and I'm white, and and you're Asian and you're Latino. He said, no, 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 no. He said, I tore down the dividing wall of hostility. So there should be no more, although there is. And so God says, the reason there is is because we got some people living unworthy. We got some people, all my Marvel people don't understand this, we got some people who can't pick up Thor's hammer. And those of you that don't know, ask someone that watches Marvel comics, they'll tell you. The thought was Thor's old hammer that only him who was worthy would be able to possess the power of Thor. And so this whole deal for us is when you and I are living worthy, he says, you will be eager for unity. So my question becomes, why are we so eager for disunity? He says, you'll be eager. You'll be looking for ways to accomplish it. Looking for ways. But he says, here is how you will maintain what the spirit has started. He said it would be through the bond, the glue of peace. And so worthy people are looking. And that word peace means rest because all things have come together. And so he says, so that you and I will be living worthy when through humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love, that we maintain the unity that only comes as a result of God working in the heart of you and I, because the Spirit started it, that we maintain it by being at rest because we allow all things to come together under Christ. And he said, this is work. It's a work of the Spirit, and it's a work that you and I have to embrace. I'm talking about living worthy. Got a lot of Christians today live in unworthy lives, that they are living unbefitting of a person that's been delivered like they have in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And then he says, once you are eager, he says, so just let me know, just, 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 just let me let you know, in case you're wondering, is this peace at any cost? He says... There is, and there's no, there's no tying conjunction, there's no and, therefore, he says, he ends it, that you maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is, and he goes right into the next story, there is one body and one spirit, and when he says, he says, look, he says, the reason we're doing this is because of the oneness of purpose that God has brought out. God has done it in what you see today. He says there's only one body. He says there's not a black body, there's not a white body. He says there's, there's, not, a, there's not an African body and an American body and a, a European body when it comes to believers. And uh, he says there's not this Christianity that's for you guys and then this group has their own brand and this group. He says, no, He says there's one body that came from one spirit. And he's about the Holy Spirit. And then he goes and he says, and there's one Lord. When he says that, there is one body and one spirit, just as you will call to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now, he's going back to verse 1. And is that one hope to that call that he has for you. One call. One hope. He says... There's not a, because there's not going to be sections in heaven, and, and your expectation, he says, there's only one expectation in Christ. And he goes on down with these seven things of oneness. Why? Because he's calling for oneness. Why? Because that is the way that you demonstrate you are living worthy of what God has done to get you to where you stand. And this is on all sides. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, and then he says one faith. There's a a body of work, there's a body of scripture, there's a body of text. There's only one that we live by, not multiple. And then he ends it and he says one baptism. We We were all brought into this faith one way. There's one baptism. And then he says one Father. And he just goes, one, one. And he says, You get the point? He says, I'm calling you to oneness because everything that I did and I do is in oneness. But he says, Unnoticed though, that there is diversity in this oneness. He said, Oneness doesn't mean uniformity. He says, Oneness means agreement in purpose, agreement in, 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 And what God wants us to embrace. And so when he says this oneness, he's not saying everyone looked the same. We didn't all come in here in uniforms. He didn't expect us all to dress the same way, listen to the same music, eat the same food, attend the same places, enjoy the same things. No, no, no. He said the oneness is in your purpose and your foundation. And yet. Later in other scriptures, we see that there's diversity in this. The point is, God says, when you live worthy, you will be eager to find ways to represent the oneness, God says, that I represent. And it doesn't mean that you give in to people's foolishness for oneness either. God says, you stand on biblical truth. You command people to live by the truth of God's word. You call out the sin, not to embarrass, not to throw under the bus, but to heal and correct. And when we do, what is my ultimate goal? Is to keep with believer to believer. We're not talking about unbeliever to believer. We're talking about among Christians is to keep or maintain the unity that the spirit started through being at peace. You want to live worthy? God says that it is expressed in community, in a community that has developed maturely. If we value what God has done in Jesus Christ, this is what I wrote down, we will do everything we can to demonstrate the grace and greatness of God in unity. Let me read it again. If we value what God has done, and I'll put in there, for us, in Jesus Christ, we will do everything we can to demonstrate the grace and greatness of God expressed in unity. So let me ask you today, are you living worthy? Standing there at the foot of the cross, understanding what Jesus has done, and then with the resurrection happening, knowing that he rose in victory, we stand here today and I ask you, are you living worthy? Or are you growing in living worthy? Or is it just something good that you do? Is it just this religious thing that you kind of embrace or that my parents or that my friends have or or is it something that is critical to you? It can be. I would urge you guys to read the first three chapters of Ephesians. Before we get into the second part, because now that we see that we are to live worthy, we're going to see, not next week, but the week after next, how God helps us to live worthy with the gifted individuals he gives the church. And that is so that you and I can learn how to live worthy lives. The point is, God calls all of us to live worthy because we can live worthy. Because he has, one, made us worthy and he helps us to remain worthy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much.